solidarity among working people is the exception and not the rule. Mm -hmm. And organizers mm -hmm. are the freaks. left of philosophy. I'm Lillian. Here with me today is Gil. Hello. Will. Hey there. And Owen. Hey. So today's episode is called Why Does Class Matter? And it's called that because we read an article, a forthcoming article of mine, where I basically make an argument for why I think class matters. So I'll just tell you a little bit about what you know, why I'm asking this question, and then I'll just throw it to the group for their thoughts. Um, so I, I say in the paper's introduction that it explores what I call an under-examined theme, which are, is who or what is the working class and what is wrong with the, mem the situation that the members of this class share. Now, this might sound like, why am I doing that? Didn't Marx do that a long time ago? And if that is your reaction... Um, one interesting fact is that Marx never really wrote about class, and I intuited that many people in philosophy, especially after the New Left, um, came into the academy, they sort of thought the class angle of oppression or domination had been resolved, that we knew enough about it because Marx and Marxists had hammered at it for some time. And the idea that I started to intuit in other philosophers was that we've already figured out the class problem. This is the more simple part of the equation. And what is now more complicated and um, has more depth is to talk about gender and race. And then it was expanded to other forms of domination. And what I write in the um, paper is that I think that this is actually not the case, that class compared to other forms of oppression is poorly understood. And I argue that what, what this entails is that the class character of other forms of oppression and or domination, whatever normative language you want to use, is therefore also poorly understood. So it is not possible with the current constraints of the discourse to make sense of why class matters, basically beyond something like inequality. And some of the original feedback that I got on this paper when I started writing it was people were sort of skeptical that I could accuse like ra other radical theorists of having a very narrow and economistic view of class or that they had a simple view of class or that they didn't have a very robust understanding of class or political economy because most radical theorists in the academy, at least until the late 70s, did accept some part of Marx's theory of class. And in, indeed, even later into the 90s, people would pay a sort of due deference to exploitation as a social problem. Um, but as we've discussed on the podcast other times, class and political economy didn't remain a central area of critique, and indeed many philosophers rejected it as an adequate or robust or interesting area of critique. And so I thought that it was about time we brought class back into the equation. And 
I basically confront what I think are some of the main objections to thinking about class conflict as a source of domination, and I try to ascertain both who I think work workers are and why I think they're dominated as a group in a way that is not reducible to the external influences of other forces of domination onto the class structure. So I argue that class divisions are a unique harm for a diverse and interdependent group within capitalist societies, both in spite of and because of differences among group members, and that class matters not just because it creates economic groups in which some are rich and the others are poor, but because competition creates conditions that militate against solidarity toward cleavage and conflict, and class is ultimately something that makes people vulnerable, jointly vulnerable to arbitrary power, um, specifically workers, and also vulnerable because they have to depend on one another to mitigate and or contest that form of arbitrary power. So I argue that if capitalism inhibits constraints on self-determination in the sense that it disrupts capacities for collective action, co collective capacities for whatever reason, then it's a constraint on self-determination and therefore a source of domination. And then I also had asked the group to read uh, Klaus Offi and Heimat Wiesenthal's Two Logics of Collective Action to also supplement our discussion. So we'll post that in our episode notes. So I'll jump in. Um, so I actually want to begin with your your article, Lillian, but I really hope we go to the two logics of collective action because, well, that's me go where you're going there. But with your article, what I thought was really interesting is that you lay out the idea of you know, two types of reductionism. And so mm -hmm. clearly you're responding to the critique of you know class reductionism is the idea that uh, let's you know just for shorthand, I'm going to say race and gender, but obviously we could proliferate with what it is, um, are ignored if you focus on class because it doesn't take into account, and I like that you focus on this language, how race and gender shape these issues. But you know, but the other sense of reduction that I thought was really important for your argument that made a lot of sense to me is that you know the other problem for, uh, of reduction is you know um, a conception of class difference that you know you not using the conception of class difference that can shed light on normally salient aspects of other kinds of domination. So what was important there was I thought that you know you were pointing out well what's happening is creating this inside outside the economy or the market, mm -hmm. which is a way of I hadn't realized is repurposing um, neoclassical economics. But it seems to me that the move should be of trying to understand how these you know, uh, contradictions arise within the market rather than acting like you know, the market is doing what it's doing and then there's this race and gender stuff that happens, which is a, another way of creating this either simplification or this division between. So there are issues with the market, but then there are these like sort of almost like more metaphysical issues with race and gender that need a complete different analysis without actually giving the material grounding for so why do these contradictions come up you know what is their logic and what do they mean so I thought that was really important you kind of like pushing back into the reductionism of an inside outside and mm -hmm. saying well let's actually look at what the market is doing and then we see actually conditions of shared vulnerability even if you know the interests are articulated differently 
which I could then just leap into talking about the collective action article, but I want to like start there and <laughs> yeah. say, it was like really important to me that you overcome or actually just bracket out this inside outside division uh, around the link, just shaping these issues and showing how they arise imminently rather than sort of a uh, transcendently imposed. Did I understand that right? Yeah, you did. I think that the more iconoclastic uh, attempt that I make in this article to critique the critique of class reductionism is exactly that, where I argue that these critiques were meant to create a more robust worldview, but they in fact did not. And they are themselves reductive in a second sense that they don't consider, which is that they continue to think about the economy in a way that is extremely narrow and reductive and for some reason like metaphysically dissimilar to every other social dynamic in which we live, which is odd considering like the market is something that we confront all day, every day, um, and is a pretty dominant part of our, our lives. So yeah, that's one move I make to say that it's perhaps ideological to say that there is an inside and an outside to the market, and then the bad stuff gets put in from the outside because, well, that's what neoclassicists think. Like, for neoclassical economics, this shit cannot be the market's fault. Like, it's defined away from the market. By the way, just real quick, because I've been reading about Hayek when I read that. It's like, <laughs> didn't he have this idea, yeah. this ideal understanding that the, the free market is the best we can do? And, you know, it's because things keep meddling in it and shaping it. And I'm like, ooh, that's uncomfortable company for, I think, some <laughs> radical fears, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like how you showed that that kind of affinity between the neoclassical economics and current kind some of the kind of current discourses on the left, which would seem at least implicitly to you know in this idea that um, you know the market in itself you know it, it maybe creates some conditions for solidarity amongst white male workers or something and that but you know it it can't have a broader solidarity because there are these external non-market forces that are getting in the way racism and sexism which are dividing people from one another um, and what that presumes is that and I like the way you put this right that it presumes that there are like automatic affinities between any workers yeah. right N let alone um, you know what white as if all kind of white male workers had some kind of automatic affinity with one another and you and there's a line where you say the labor market guarantees solidarity to no one um, mm -hmm. And I really, really like that line because it because it puts the 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 kind of onus on thinking within economic terms rather than and trying to actually understand the economy better and economic determinations better rather than doing what I think we as theorists would usually rather do, which is to say that well, that's there's a kind of background. Um, what you, what's the word you used it for? A, ta a tabula. A tableau. tableau. Oh, that's right. There's a background tableau in which, well, the economy's there and there are these things that we think about that go in and kind of, I don't know, interrupt or determine or affect the economic sphere. And that's what we're primarily, primarily interested in. Because again, like you said at the beginning, we already, the economy's already been accounted for. And like Marxists have already understood, mm. you know, they've already done the work on class. They've already done the work on, on economy. So what we need to do then is work, focus on these other vectors of domination and how they interact with this field that we presumably already understand. And I think you go to task on that presumption, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, and I also like um, your movement from the focus on inequality to domination, because I, I took. Yeah, the, the I wanted point, to ask about this. Yeah, uh, do you? 
because yeah, maybe you should ask your question first before I, I oh, no. mutilate it. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> no, please go ahead. <laughs> okay, so what I was going to say is what I what I really liked about that is so I take it that you know focusing on inequality, you know I can actually see and maybe at some point we'll read some of his work why you know someone maybe in the Adolf Reed you know way of thinking about the seas. Well, if you focus on that, then it seems like what you think the problem is how can we create some sort of parody of uh, and by parody, P-A-R-I-T-Y, because obviously parody of <laughs> the, the ruling class, you might think I'm about making fun of the ruling class, which I am. But how <laughs> we can create some sort of parody in the ruling class rather than understanding, you know, yeah, there can be in unequal outcomes, but that does not and should not obscure a fundamental general domination, uh, structure of domination that's at play. And that, you know, unless you attend to that structure of domination in the labor market, given that workers do not own the means of production, their labor power cannot be, you know, severed from them as if it's a commodity. If you obscure that only focus on inequality, then you actually just abstract away what the market is doing, how it creates these tensions and these conflicts and make it seem as if we can just rejigger things around and it'll be fine. But if the problem is general domination, that you have to actually think really deeply about what is you know, sort of the, the causal effect of this inequality, rather than making the inequality the cause, and that's what we need to, to root out as such. Yeah, if I could piggyback on that, I think, I mean, I, one of the questions that I had like to ask you, Lillian, if you could like help clarify is like, what is this like notion of domination that you're using? Because I think I buy the argument uh, as you lay it out and as Will just sort of recapitulated a little bit, that inequality is an inadequate frame or an inadequate way to parse the problem of what's going on in these class conflictual relations. Uh, and that domination gets at something important about what this is actually about in material terms, mm -hmm. about self-determination. And is, and is um, a better so, normative category, I think, is also the claim. Right. Is the claim. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. So I was like wondering if you could like help unpack a little bit what you understand by domination and how it's involved in these economic relations. Yeah, I start using the word domination in the Republican sense, where Republicans think about domination as a capacity, something you can exercise. And normally, and I don't talk about civic virtues in this paper, but they normally talk about um, capacities in terms of civic virtue, like how much you can... Um, like in what ways you can adequately represent your interests as a part of a collective, and presumably this takes some shaping of moral character to be able to do this. Um, and the way that I start talking about domination here is I'm, I'm looking at the way capitalism and the labor market specifically, and then more specifically labor market dependency, how it shapes people's epistemic, cognitive, and moral and practical capacities. And I started looking at it and I'm like, holy shit, like this is really an inhibition on everybody's capacities to be able to determine the course of their own lives. And what makes class domination distinct mm -hmm. is that people have to do that collectively. Unlike other locations in the capitalist class structure that do not need collective action, like employers who can use collective action, like they can come together opportunistically based on pretty obvious preconceived um, like goals, you know, so like they, they're, they're able to talk about their, um, their profit margins, the rate of profit, they're able to talk about, you know, what they need to get out of every quarter. And if there's a strike, they're fully united against it, you know? Um, 
So there's a way in which their interests are rather transparent to themselves for the purposes in which they need to like join up together. Like that's not that complicated. Or lobbying for policies, like political lobbying, which they unite yeah. in order to accomplish. Right? Yeah. So like if you notice that if as soon as you look at the other side of the equation, while well, these capacities are deeply unequal, and that's where I start thinking that this is why it's domination. Because if you need to be able to exert collective power, to be able to determine something about your own life in this society, and the entire social structure sets up, capa- sets up um, constraints, inhibitions, or um, deterrences for your ability to do that and not by accident, then what happens is that these capacities are undermined and the effect is that you're subject to the arbitrary power of employers. And I think that the only way you can see that is from the perspective of the class as a whole. You can see it in terms on micro, um, like more uh, small scale things like within a sector. So I gave the example of UPS workers and like tier tiered work, like separating part-time and full-time workers. I think I also use the example of adjuncts and professors. Um, But these are conditions that if you look from the perspective of the whole, you start seeing a mass of people that are very collectively interdependent based on the fact they have to compete with one another and the fact that it's so damn difficult for them to exert any kind of collective power just based on their structural relationship with capital. And that's, that's abstracting away from the legal... Uh, barriers and and the pl- so on and so forth. So that's why I think it's domination. Does that does that help? It does. It does. I was also reminded in, when you were talking about this and in the both in your article and also in the um, the the two logics piece uh, of the Adam Smith actually makes this point already in the Wealth of Nations, which is kind of wild that it's overlooked. Where he talks about like when it comes to the determination of something like wages what we end up with is a kind of conflictual relation where in which uh, like the owners of capital and those who sell their labor are in this sort of antagonistic uh, competition of a sort to try to figure out how this will be, what a reasonable kind of remuneration would look like. And then he says, of course, all of the advantages accrue to the owners of capital. They're fewer in number. Structurally, everything is on their side. The state and the legislative authority uh, just kind of naturally tends to favor them. Have the cops. And it's funny that, yeah, and the cops are on their side, of course, right? What's funny is he's he's uh, he's able to like note this contradiction and, and doesn't know what to do with it, right? Which is why we need to move beyond him to Marx. But it's I think it's amazing <laughs> that it's already there in a way. He's like, of course, it's way harder to get workers together uh, to recognize something like a common set of interests or even to be able to mobilize concretely in an effective political way on the basis of a, 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 a recognized shared interest, if we get that far, than it is for just like workers to, or I'm sorry, for owners to just be like, well, all right, we'll just make a couple changes. We've got immediate sort of transparency of interest to ourselves. Yeah, and what I really loved about the two logics articles, what it, what it clarified uh, for me is that, you know, you, by taking this viewpoint, it also becomes quite clear to go all the way back to our first episode, why the logic of like the sort of individual humanism doesn't work, the sort of self-determining person. So there's this great line where you know, it goes to illustrate, quote, the individual worker has hardly any chance of making his, her avoidance alternative on employment personally more acceptable, nor does he, she have much leverage for making the employer's preference curve steeper. And so basically what they're saying there is that, you know, 
know, when managers and bosses want to do something, they rarely have to actually talk with the people they're going to do it with and be like, hey, are y'all okay with it? Like, obviously, sometimes there are legal mechanisms in place to try to inhibit that. But structurally, as the, the language that they use, uh, use it, you know, the bosses and managers, it's it's monological. They don't actually have to do mm -hmm. with the difficult stuff as if you are a, a, a worker. There's a whole lot you can't just do on your own. And the type of organizing that has to happen there is while uh, managers don't have to really worry about conflicts of needs and all of that, unions can't avoid that problem. They actually have to, you know, the way that I, I, I love the way that it's put is unions are therefore confronted with the task of organizing the entire spectrum of needs that people have when they are employed as wage workers. That is a completely different type of domination than, say, what a manager has to go through, where things are often very streamlined for them, and the whole sort of system is set up to make it very clear, here's what you want, here's how you can get it, and we're going to try to grease it as much as you can. While bringing together wage workers, like, they can have conflictual needs, and they are dependent on one another, but they're also thrown against one another to try to accomplish their goals, which means it's going to be a fundamentally different type of, uh, of, of maybe um, we could put sort of political praxis that is necessary. Mm. But, you know, so I thought that was like really helpful that also the domination is how hard it is to get clear on like, so how do we say what our real interests are? How do we know that they adequately represent us when you have all of these multiple needs flying around? And I just really felt that. I think that that kind of epistemic and moral ambiguity on the part of workers is, is really important because one of the reasons I started writing my articles, like when I read, I first read the two logics of collection, collective action piece, it struck me that like this is a response sort of covertly to a lot of criticisms and big mysteries um, that people launch against class conflict theory, Marxism, um, the idea that the working class is a political agent, and it doesn't present itself as such. So the first problem is why don't workers always organize? Like, why don't they unionize? Why aren't they performing the social role that we hope they will or that we used to hope they will? Well, the answer is very simple, that when, if you are a wage worker, you have, unless somebody comes along and makes it viable for you, more attractive, more um, worth taking of the risk to join a collective organization, it makes sense to go it alone. Um, that kind of, because the risk, the burden of risk on you is so much higher than it is for your employer getting fired. Um, I mean, we've always known that it's the risk of getting fired that, you know, haunts people, but it's also, why don't they join these collective organizations? Well, because unless someone gives you a concrete, um, you know, op opens that path, makes you think you can take it, that it's realistic, you have no reason to take it because that you have countervailing interests. Likewise with, um, Resource closure, the idea that some workers will hoard skills or jobs, um, that kind of thing, I try to articulate the conditions under which that becomes attractive, especially as people lose power within um, collective organizations. And so what I, I start with the premise that solidarity among working people is the exception and not the rule, mm -hmm. and organizers mm -hmm. are the freaks. 
organizers or the <laughs> altruists. And this is mm. something I learned from Vivek Chibber when I first read the two logic, uh, logics of collective action. I remember him standing up at the board and he made this like um, U shape, like, you know, those uh, shit, you can tell I don't know how to do math or, st or statistics, but you know, those like statistical curves where they show you like the norm with the hump in the middle. Like the normative, the the belt, the normative distribution or whatever, um, mm. he drew that on the board and he was like, "You have to understand, most people are here in the middle. You people, because we're all a bunch of like socialists in his class." He was like, "You people are all the way over here. You're on the right hand side. You are not normal. Get that through your head." And I remember him pointing, at, "You are not normal." And you're I was like, <laughs> "You're a total freak." But this is true because the motivation, like organizers are different. They're people who kind of, they want to organize you, but you, it's your job to make it attractive to people to join your organization. And that's not going to just come naturally. So the idea that people think that there's some kind of automatic affinity among workers, whatever their identities, um, I think is misplaced. And it's led to a lot of misunderstandings of, of what is going, going on here. Um, and I think it actually mystifies the further step that would allow you to identify where something like racism or xenophobia does come from endogenously to the labor process based on different patterns of migration, different local histories, and so on. So I, I, I know we're going to get to that, uh, this like question of this, like how to functionally or how to understand the functional coordination or like dialectical imbrication of things like race and class. But before we do, I think kind of getting to some of what you were just talking about, one of the things you lay out in the article, which I think is really helpful, is like these two different kinds of social theory in general. Um, and one of them is like stratification theory and the other is class conflict. And so I think you helpfully kind of talk about what the sort of apparent benefits or attractions to both of them are. Obviously, you come down on the side of class, so a uh, class conflictual social theory. Um, could you talk a little bit about what the stratification theory is and why you think the class theory is better? Yeah, the stratification theory is basically the mainstream way of thinking about class in, in sociology. Um, so most sociology, like if, if you study inequality in a sociology department or with the, that, that discipline at large, you're mostly doing stratification. And what that is, is trying to um, create justifications for how you think inequality, like the state of inequality in a given population, usually a country, but also could be the world. The difference between stratification theories and class conflict theories is that Stratification theories don't think of class as a categorical variable. It's something that can have an infinite number of gradational types. So like it could be determined by income, by education. And in fact, if you even want to study class in the U.S., you have to study it based on proxy things like education, which is why you'll get a lot of socialists in academia talking about um, the people with or without high school degrees, because it's the only way to approximate who might be working class in this literature, because they there's no statistics kept based on the kind of categorical variable that you would think about in terms of being working class, like relationship to the means of production. So it can have an infinite number of gradational types because it's really up to the theorist, like what they want to know about reality that tells them what categories they should use to understand that reality. And for Marxists, this is not appropriate because, I mean, I think that there are actual concrete social positions that are not arbitrary that I'm trying to understand how these social relationships work, evolve, and develop over time. And it's not just up to me to make these designations. And I think that like 
I mean, I think it's a better way of understanding reality, but you know, there's a fair disagreement. Some people just don't think that's true. But you, you do pose, right, if I get this right, a kind a definition of class that opposes that kind of stratification understanding of it, mm-hmm. which is yeah. totally individual and not categorical because you define it as dependency on the labor market, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a little different the way that I do it from the way that I think other Marxists have done it um, because I think there's this misconception that, like, class is the same thing as an identity or a type of job or occupation. Like there's this, pro- mm-hmm. there's this preoccupation in literature that's critical of Marxism with the white industrial worker, white male industrial mm-hmm. worker. Mm-hmm. And I have been asking myself for years, why are people preoccupied with this person? Like the working class that I know, at least that I observe, is not a white male industrial worker. But the argument was that just because the demographics and the job classifications and the type of work people were doing changed, that Marxism was no longer relevant because people didn't work in these factories anymore and they didn't have this particular job category. And I'm like, that was never the view. It was never the view. If you think about capitalism as a conflictual system that evolves and changes, and again, that's why I talk about real competition, which is closer, and where Sheikh has corrected me, it's not opposed to all classical economics. It's actually closer to classical economics than, but it's a rejection of neoliberalism neo, or, and neo, neoclassical economics. Like the idea that capitalism would just stay stagnant and that the working class would just be these industrial people, it's, it was just never a part of the methodology. And I just, I just don't really understand how that got caught up in the rejection of class theory, but it did. So that's why I brought it up. And, and I think that's a big part of the reason why class is generally dismissed, at least in, um, or it doesn't seem to spark the same kind of curiosity in the degree of work or the departments dedicated to understanding it or any of that. It's partly because the kind of paradigmatic working class person, I still think in a lot of people's minds, whether they're aware of it or not, is this kind of white, you know, factory working male, who I think many people perceive to have achieved their you know, have achieved a place in civil society that doesn't require the kind of, I don't know, uh, that doesn't require the kind of work that we're called to do when we think about other kinds of oppression, which seem more salient, more urgent, more vicious, right? At one point you say that the market, like working, you know, being dependent on the market or the marketplace starts to seem um, almost like a kind of benign like a, a, a benign social force, like the market, right? Compared to these other social forces, which obviously are really bad, right? But patriarchy or white supremacy, right? That there's a sense in which, um, in which, I don't know, I think maybe because of that paradigmatic figure of the worker, which is not adequate to the actual social situation that we face, there's a tendency to, I don't know, to not maybe sense the same urgency for thinking about uh, class. And I'd just like to make maybe a meta-theoretical point about what ha- is happening there is I think you know, there's a strange way in which the best you know, language I have for it is a certain cultural imaginary has seeped into social theory as if it's social theory. And what I'm thinking about is even when we're talking about the working class, when I see people you know, talk about that, usually what they're just talking about, they're imagined significations of what it means to be working class. 100%. So they'll mention pickup truck, um, trucker hat, or things that quite, you know, 
construction, yeah. Which you know, and then they impute these sort of moral valuations on the types of people they imagine you know, do those things. And that seems to add more grist to the mill to be like, you know, so enough of this focus on class, because clearly all y'all are focused on are these people that we've decided are morally, you know, reprehensible, what have you. And what I find strange there is it just shows how a type of imagination offers itself as if it's sociological analysis, which mm -hmm. means we get further and further away from understanding, if I understand your view, uh, you know, understanding class as a process rather mm -hmm. than just you know, uh, a bunch of contingent identities a body might be having on itself. Yeah, I mean, if I were going to like say some of the most important strategic sectors to organize right, right now, I would talk about you know almost primarily logistics. That can't possibly mm. make the argument that that's a predominantly white workforce, um, healthcare yeah. workers, dominated by women. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, Food service. yeah, I agree. I've I've found this like I've 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 actually found myself almost kind of snapping at people at times because I'd be talking about class and um, they would start you know kind of the the accusation of class reductionism comes pretty quickly if you talk about class at all. So. I, I found myself in situations where I wanted to just like snap at people and be like, okay, for some reason, when I think class, you think white, even though they think they're, they, they're making the opposite. Yeah. Even though they think they're, they think they're saying that to me in reverse. Um, mm -hmm. but it just be one of the motivations for writing this paper is I just realized I was developing a conception of class that, um, was really, um, alien to the way that is common sense. So I was no longer on the same page with people about what mm -hmm. class was, and therefore I needed to write about it. Otherwise, <laughs> that was never going to resolve itself. I mean, itself. it's important. People think Trump's base is, is like you know is working class, even though you know mm -hmm. the yeah. we we know that they are overwhelmingly petit bourgeois. But mm -hmm. that speaks mm -hmm. to the kind of paradigmatic imagination. Rather than a kind of sociological analysis or something, an imagination of what the working class is. Yeah, and I also feel like that as a sociological category has almost been evaporated from public discourse and all of that. To be, you know, understand you know these different types of um, class relations and all of that. But I also wanted to ask you, Lillian, about you know your paper, your um, explicit uh, what what did you call it? Um, practical uh, practical theoretical approach? Did I get that right? Mm -hmm. Practice theor theoretical. Mm -hmm. Practice yeah. theoretical. Yeah. I am someone who was an, a big fan of this. So, you know, I, I like this way that you talk about the, the normative structuring of a practice. So basically, it seems like what you're trying to do is like, you know, let's stop just, you know, doing all of this sort of idealizing and imagining. And actually, let's get into the guts of what one would you know, have to do in order to have the success of solving a particular problem mm -hmm. and what resources one has for identifying what they have to do to solve a, a problem or not. And so, of course, when you're thinking about, you know, use this example of uh, someone trying to sell perfume or something. I love, and, I love know, this. Some people... Yeah, I thought that was great that because you, you had a way of showing also how norms can arise endogenously from a particular structure of what that practice is and what counts as success rather than from being you know, imaginarily imposed. And so I also take this to be as a correction of how we 
well, how you say we ought to do social theory, that social theory that starts from these abstract idealizations of what goes on, you know, ends up eclipsing all of these ways we can understand how norms arise and what it means to solve problems, which makes it very practical, not just in the way that you're using it, but pragmatic insofar as if you want people to join an organization, you have to be able to make the case that you're going to be able to solve the problems that, 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 that they have, that mm -hmm. there's going to be some success that they can understand and be able to like oh yes this makes sense you stop me if i'm wrong but no you know, no you're totally like... right i'm glad that you're into the the practice theoretical thing i mean it's certainly just a more pragmatic take and my hope is is really that um that it will kind of rectify some of the problems with the level of abstraction that a lot of thrust structuralist accounts have when it comes to describing these phenomena and I just think it's long overdue because these kinds of accounts of like getting into the nitty gritty of daily experience of other kinds of oppressions are well established. Hmm. Um, and people like will often talk about class, but because they don't go into any detail, they'll be like, okay, of course these are the material conditions, but then like there are these discourses and then there are norms and then there are identities. And at a certain point I'm like, wait a minute, but like class isn't doing any of the work except for being like a general situation that is underspecified. And the reason that this is a problem is that, I mean, it's analytically a problem, but I also think that it causes a great deal of unfortunate projection onto people who um, have different, are in a pretty different situation. Like it's, it's possible for, I think, theoreticians to be able to like, mo you know, create models to the best of our knowledge. Like we have to not only speak about ourselves, but working people like may or may not have the same preoccupations that we do, the same um, commitments, because people, like, like we have spent years of our lives coming up with our systems. You know, like we, like consistency of thought is like basically our job. And it's the job of a lot of professional class people, of culturally, like people who are in the creative and thinking industries, you know, whatever. You have the time to kind of like learn to put all of the ducks in a row. Now, part of the problem with class is that it's very difficult to imagine a situation in which you have, um, you may or may not have that integrated of a normative and cultural worldview. You have different incentives. You might, you know, like some people might be very religious. It might be very systematic. Some people, um, you know, so I'm not saying that people don't have a systematic worldview, but if there are these cognitive defects, right, uh, kind of problems in, in developing solidarity in the workplace and for the class as a whole, then there are going to be ways in which, like, that kind of differing inf interests in the same situation, different perspectives on the same situation, um, different reasons for do for taking one strategy or another, unless you try to actually look at it and say, what would be reasonable under these circumstances, then I don't think you're going to get very far. You're just going to project onto them the things that you kind of hope they think or that you would... Um, that think that seem consistent with something else that you're more familiar with, um, and unfortunately, you know, I think the class divide and what that kind of workspace is like is actually um, something that's more alien to um, researchers than than they like to admit. I just want to jump in real quick because you, know, um, 
I just, I want to like, you know, throw out something that, you know, is a personal interest to me, especially when you have this line about, you know, for Rahel Yegi, um, a problem is objective and subjective. And in that moment, you know, I thought about the the text that everyone wants to talk about whenever they talk about race, which is Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk. You know, he has that famous line, you know, um, you know, that unasked question, what does it feel like to be a problem, which is subjective. And then there's the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. Okay. Oh. I'm not going where you think I'm going. Where I'm going is what is sort of like a vanishing process in Souls of Black Folk, which is unfortunate because it's taken up as this sort of seminal text I think has also affected an articulation of black politics, is class. There's a real problem with the Talented Tenth, where Du Bois clearly thinks the Talented Tenth have realized, oh, subjectively, I feel like a problem. Oh, now I know the objective problem. But then you know, he has a story where this Talented Tenth guy you know, named John, he goes down south and he tries to organize you know, his black kingdom down there but he just thinks that they're you know a bunch of dummies and all that john is like you know really offering them is like you all should read shakespeare what are you all doing (laughs) still going to your backwards church and is shocked that they just don't care or listen to him and it's because he can't actually one articulate what their problems are and two he clearly doesn't even understand you know what their their issues are and what they value and what you know what would be success for them and so i wanted to bring bring that up because i thought it was like a really interesting way to critique was is i love the boys let me just be very clear i love the boys but was like a (laughs) foundational text of how we think about leadership and organizing and that you know really what you have going on there is why in the world would that work where you don't even try to understand so what are the endogenous issues that are arising just like just trust me i'll take care of it why would anyone do that you don't even understand the situation so i just uh, wanted to make that connection between your problem solving because that doesn't solve a problem why would anyone trust you yeah, that's another example of treating a group like a sociological object, which you yes. think you can understand by their kind of objective position vis-a-vis a power structure, rather than what I take to be the kind of um, practice theoretical uh, approach, which resists that kind of structural approach to understanding uh, oppression or domination, which seeks to actually enter what you call like the kind of normative texture of how it is that people that are in positions of domination experience and navigate that domination. And I think the promise that is that, well, you know, the objective view of social groups didn't deliver, you know, the view, for example, that, well, there's something that will automatically unite people that are proletarianized and eventually there'll be class solidarity and we'll have a revolution, right? The, I think the, the real promise of that is that, I think one of your claims, sorry, implicitly at least, is that the political potential of this practice theoretical model is much richer than the political potential um, of the kind of sociological, sociologically objectifying structuralist approach to understanding what a class position is. Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm definitely still, you know, pro-class politics, but I, what I'm hoping to contribute is just a little more of a realistic understanding mm. of, of mm-hmm. what those politics can and should look like and how over time they, they change. Like there's the problem of labor unions once they're successful institutionalization is something that they have to do, um, but they will run into the various attempts of the, of the state and of their representatives who need to make themselves continuously relevant as brokers, you know, for the union with other parts mm-hmm. of the, of the political parties or the state. And so there's a kind of like, there 
as soon as something's institutionalized in that way, there can be a, a parting of ways between the collective membership and their activity and the representation. And I think what I'm just trying to contribute is that we have to stop looking for shortcuts for this stuff. Mm. Like, it's not sufficient to say that the working class will just do it eventually. They won't. They might not, like, honestly. Mm -hmm. But there's a normative argument, which is what I'm starting to build, for why they should. Mm. And you can either buy that or not buy that, but I'm, I'm trying to make my case. And for people who want to, like, resist class politics, my question for them is simply, is there, like, like what's... What's your alternative, and is it going to be able to form the same sorts of collective interest that I'm putting forth here? And there might be multiple sources of collective interest, but now at least I've got on the table substantively what that is, which is why at the end of it, I'm like, they have a claim to self-determination, and then now we can actually put it into conversation with other claims, because if the claim is just like, we want less inequality, or we want a revolution in the abstract, well, like, so do we all, you know? So... <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, not. join the I don't club. Know. Okay, <laughs> whatever. I mean, I don't know if I want revolution. I I just want to be happier. <laughs> and maybe like your know, revolution is the necessary condition for that. But I just want a little more happiness in the world. That's it. That's all. I actually, you know, I don't know if you, you all want to go a, a different route, but I thought the, the turning towards the two logics article might help because it seems like an, a natural place to go to. Now that we're talking about, you know, when uh, unions emerge, eventually they have to institutionalize. And it seemed as if part of the argument near the end of the article is that, you know, unions find themselves under pressure from, you know, they need to survive and they need to show that they can be successful. And what eventually happens by being absorbed institutionally is it begin, you know, the imperative to survive starts to override, you know, actually being successful. And so what seemed to be going on here is that they're also giving a really realist argument of, you know, why organizing is so difficult. I like that, you know, mm -hmm. they, you know, brought up like, hey, guess what? When you get more members in the union, like you need that to survive. It also makes things harder. Like, and I, and I wonder if sometimes we romanticize the idea of like, let's just build mass power and like, boom, baby, that there you got it. But then this starts getting into the guts of, yeah, well, there are going to be conflicts between members, between members and leaders, between leaders feeling like, you know, this needs to carry on. And as it's absorbed, it, you know, it develops a sort of dependence on the institution that's absorbed into. And that institution is going to have some, some terms that it wants you to abide by, which means don't succeed too much. You know, let's be, you know, very clear. And so I thought, you know, that was a really, you know, provocative way of trying to like, you know, again, getting rid of the romanticism, getting back to the realism of how difficult, or to use the language used, how there are not shortcuts to these political practices. One of the interesting things that that kind of analysis like highlights, I think, is that there's actually a really important difference between like the reason for being for an institution or an organization and how it maintains itself or continues to exist. Right. And so like these things get blurred together uh, sort of uncritically when we uh, talk or act as though the fact that there does need to be some kind of organization of or, or a collective interest is is how and why these organizations are unifying projects 
do their work. And the, the, the truth of the matter is, as you were just saying, Will, and as they point out in the article, that no, those are actually extremely different kinds of reasons and they're very different processes that are often conflictual, mm. right? I mean, in other words, like at, at the limit, like we end up with situations sometimes where like the way in which an, uh, an institution is able to continue to exist is by contradicting certain um, elements of that uh, interest or end in the first place. Like that's the, that's the, the extreme limit here. Yeah. And I think that it's important to show that there are limits. Like there's a way in which I think the argument that in the two logics of collective action um, article, the argument it's pushing against is, you know, the voluntarist one, that if the people involved were just more, like, tougher, more politically astute, less susceptible to co-optation by the establishment, more, um, just, like, more principled, like, whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. and the argument is just, like, no, man, that's not, that's not what's happening here because there's a couple of problems. I mean, in the first place, what you're saying, Gil, is trade unions have to remain relevant to their members. So they have to not only demand things that their employers can actually provide, like if you demand too much from your employer, first of all, you're not going to win because they're not going to do anything that drives them out of business. So then you're going to delegitimize yourself in the face of your membership. Um, and then they're going to lose trust in you. They're not going to be as engaged. And then um, if you were to demand too much also like there's a structural reason for that like employers don't can't give you everything that you need in order and and still stay employers so this like class conflict has a has a real strong micro dynamic and in order to kind of be the legitimate partners at the bargaining table with management labor has to discipline its membership and so i think there was a kind of sometimes romantic view of the labor movement not among the many critics I raised in, in my own article, but among, I think, people on the left. But what I'm kind of interested in doing is a, a kind of save and rescue. Like, nonetheless, collective action gets the goods. So, mm -hmm. you know, instead of being um, romantic... Can. Right, yeah, instead of being romantic about it, let's just, you know, think about it more straightforwardly. Yeah, and that romanticism seeps into even... I think the way people think about how to resist that ossification of unions, right, which you which you mentioned, right, which is that, you know, I've seen a lot personally of kind of romanticization of wildcat strikes, which I <laughs> there are many that I've loved, you know, and that I think have an incredibly important strategic uh, strategic function. But it, but some of my best friends are wildcat strikes. There you go. <laughs> but, just, but like you said, there's no shortcut. A new right? stage in the culture war. Uh oh. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, there's no there's no shortcuts. I mean, it, that you still have to reckon with that kind of nitty gritty question of organizing, of adjudicating all of these differences, of trying to build something more durable than just what you know a wildcat strike offers. And that's just one example of where I think that kind of shortcut happens. So this is like you know, a thing that you know, as you all know from you know our group chat, I've been thinking about, which is you know collective action gets the goods, but it seems as if you know. Something that happens, especially when uh, labor organizations eventually have to discipline their members, is that this can start to lead to a lack of trust between the members and the leaders. And so I guess I have two separate questions. One is about your article, and one is maybe about how this could happen in practice. One, I think you, as you said, you're making a normative argument for self-determination. And so it's like, you know, part of what you are offering with this, you know, article is it actually is important to have a vision of why we ought to do this rather than it being like, you know, I guess this is a thing one could do 
or this is a thing that happens to occur. And two, I don't, I don't, I'm not expecting this to come up with like the easy answers in the nitty gritty, but do you all agree um, that was, you know, this normative call for self-determination that, you know, trust in a collective action group is necessary or is that simply it's nice if that happens, but there'll be other overriding factors that will do that work. And if not, how can the, the resources, the normative resources for trust towards self-determination be renewed? Because I was taking from the, the, the co-authored article logics is that, you know, you know, they were saying we can see rationally why opportunism would happen in a labor organization. And I, I've, I've realized that there's something really interesting when they're saying this is actually reasonable. This isn't like about sellouts or, you know, mm -hmm. when they start to depend on the institution, that's because they, they weren't tough enough. Maybe in individual cases that might be the case, but they're saying I can lay out structurally why it's rational to do that. But then this ossification sets in and the trust starts to, you know, to wean down. And I'm not saying like, you know, sort of metaphysically, but because there are structural factors that are making it difficult to keep that trust in place. So what do we do with that, that issue? What is our responsibility as, you know, theorists? You know, that's why I'm asking, like, I'm not saying we need to, like, say, lay out, here's our 10-step plan, but it seems like that should at least be on the agenda, that that is not something one can just avoid. It's not a contingent problem. Hmm. It seems to be, like, a necessary uh, contradiction, if I can put it that way, that one, you know, encounters. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the, you know, million dollar question. I mean, in practice, like for the least for the labor movement, there's, you know, efforts towards reform caucuses and so on and so forth, like mm. like rank and file members who want to change their union. But more concretely, in terms of just generally building up workplace organizations or any organizations, people have to have a common project. They actually have to have some stakes and I feel like one of the things that's kind of missing in a lot of the abstract questions that people ask in like philosophy workshops about coalition building or whatever is like, what are people's interests? Like, is there something that they're actually like interested in like fighting for together? Or are we just like in a moral conglomeration that's like generally opposed to things? Um, and that's, and that's pretty much what it sounds like most of the time. And the problem is, is that if you want to build relationships among people who don't have a stake in being seen in like the correct moral light or whatever, like just don't find that to be like the, the relevant thing they want to do. Um, you've got to like have something that they need and try to figure out how they can work together to, to build it. And I just finished, um, Cedric Johnson's book from revolutionaries to race leaders, where he was talking about the black power movement. And so some of its own dynamics of elite capture. And he has this formulation where he talks about class politics based on situated class experiences. Like he kind of raises that often because, and he raises the example of some people in New Orleans, um, who were trying to get, this disgusting corporation to not like build a plant near them or to, and, um, the, the neighborhood got together to resist these people, like this corporation come from coming to their community. And some of them even went to Japan. It was a Japanese corporation. They went over there, but you know, and they won. And he just talks about like everyone there had an interest in these people not coming to town and they got together, and I don't f remember all the little steps, but you know, they they wrote petitions. Part of it is they got that Japanese company to like invite some of them over there, and it was a multiracial group, a group that would ha would had a very strong, 
you know, Jim Crow legacy. And he argues that, you know, part of what this did is it created some healing for that community. Um, you know, he doesn't, and he doesn't romanticize this, but he's like having a common goal, something tangible. Um, people start to see each other in a different light when they're making progress towards something like that. They don't build trust if what's being expected of you is that you subscribe to a set of norms or principles that they don't, you don't right away identify with because you don't see the payoff in, in doing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I really you know, love about this, and this is near the end uh, of your, your article, and this is kind of what I see like maybe the meta work that articles like this do, you start focusing on, and I don't, I don't know if this was intentional, but it seems like it really falls from the argument of you know, the role that learning plays in these movements yeah. you have this line you know and you're talking about how you know the red baiting mccarthy era and deindustrialization started to, you know to break these labor movements apart quote if one combines this repression red baiting mccarthy era uh with the onset of deindustrialization then what emerges a labor movement that was unable to transmit a learning process in which solidarity had emerged as a counterculture end quote and so what i think is also really uh uh uh, interesting to reflect on is a more sort of diachronic view of how do we continue transmitting, you know, yeah. what are the concrete processes in which trust could emerge so that collective action could be effective. But when we lose that learning part, when we lose that sort of cultivation of the future of what you're handing down, then, you know, to, to go back to, you know, our favorite guy, it seems like Start describes in his critique of dialectical reason of how, you know, groups come together and then eventually through institutionalization, they become what he calls serial, which is, you know, separate but together. And I just think the learning process, not to sound too Hegelian, but might be like something you'd want to keep handing down to you know another set of circumstances to amass that so that's not like you have to rebuild it from the ground floor each and every time which seems like such a fatal problem if time is not infinite you know to deal with the, the problems that we we may have I mean I think that's totally where we're at right now I mean I think that like the learning process was broken down that's what neoliberalism did and so now we build abstract ideals of like how we could all be in solidarity together but it's not you know that that pathway isn't clear and I think what's often forgotten is that it was generations of people that built up those capacities together you know there's all kinds of stories for example of people who are part of the labor movement in Germany the social the SPD in its heyday when they came over to the U.S. These were like the most militant trade union fighters, the Finns, you know, like they <laughs> as well, like they showed up and they were like ready to go. And they were not seen as like integrated into the social life. They were seen as foreigners. They were seen as, you know, dirty communist aliens, whatever. But they had this experience. Likewise, in a totally different context, I guess I, re I was reading about East Germany recently, which is why I'm thinking about these different ways in which these people moved across the world. But after the Second World War, in East Germany, there was this big uprising in 1953 against the new regime. And it was this huge trade, like huge wave of strikes and trade union organizations. And the author that I read, um, Gareth Dale, he describes how the most plausible explanation for this is that this is the cadre of the SPD from the pre-war years that remembered. Like, they're the same people. Mm. 
And they're the people who either were in the resistance, went underground, in whatever way survived the war, and they're in East Germany now, and they had the institutional memory and the cadre and the infrastructure to be able to pull off these strikes. And over time, in East Germany, that, you know, that tanked. Like, that wasn't a model that was able to continue. Um, but it's that kind of, of, of thing that I think we should start thinking about and thinking less in terms of, like, I mean, we need to have policy proposals and so on. But given the low level of organization that the American population is at, particularly workers, there needs to be a, a much more sober look at like what are the things that can be done to build these relationships and build these institutions. And the problem is that it's not sexy. It doesn't seem like a freedom struggle when you're mm -hmm. sitting down and having some annoying conversation with your coworker that is awkward that you've never had before and so on. So, All right, I think that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Please like and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. If you like what we're doing, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash philosophy. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.